If you have your scriptures, open them to Psalm 73. We're going to look at this very familiar, if you're not familiar with Psalm 73, you will be at the end of this sermon. It is one of the most beloved psalms in the Bible. Uh, And I think it's beloved because if you read it and you read through it and you think about it, you meditate on what it's talking about, what you're going to notice is that it tracks a human experience that is common to every human being. And uh, you'll see what I'm talking about as we read it. It's printed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible. But, and we urge you to bring your scriptures with you. But if you don't have one, it's printed there and it's in the version that I'm going to read. So now hear God's Word starting in verse 1. I'll read the whole thing. And pay close attention to the, to the track that this psalmist goes on. It's, it is absolutely pure genius. The track he takes uh, not only himself on, but his reader. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as with a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with Your counsel and afterward You receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but You? And beside You, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. When I was uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, uh, one of my professors, Steve Brown, some of you may have heard of uh, Dr. Steve Brown, he was our homiletics professor. In other words, he taught us how to preach, and so you can blame him uh, for whatever. Uh, But he taught us uh, the ins and outs of preaching, and he also taught practical theology classes. This is where we would go and sit, and they would tell us what church is really like. What is it really like to be a pastor? I have yet to have anybody come in my office and ask me to outline the book of Romans for them and discuss all of the theological ins and outs of Paul's theology. Uh, That rarely, if ever, will happen. But what you do have is people come in with real, honest-to-goodness hurts and pains and struggle, like this psalmist. And Steve Brown, in one of our classes, I'll never forget, uh, talking about a young lady, he, had, he pastored a big church down in Florida, South Florida, Miami, and uh, a lady in his church, a young woman, single woman, uh, came to him one day very angry, and she told Steve, she said, you know, I have had it with God. I've listened to all of this talk in the church, and I have lived an exemplary Christian life as a young woman. I am still a virgin. I have not had any intimacy with a man. I have not so much as kissed another man. And I have saved myself from my my perfect husband out there, wherever he is. And I have prayed that God will bring me a husband. And I have watched year by year as my friends have gotten married and found happiness. And no husband for me. I don't even get asked out on a date. And I don't understand God. I've been faithful to Him. I was in the youth group here at the church and in the college ministry and I've I've done everything that God has asked of me. And I'm angry with Him because I'm looking around and seeing all my friends are getting married, they're having families, they're having children, and I have nothing. And my boss, I have a very handsome boss. And he's paying attention to me now. And he likes me, and he wants to go out on a date with me. But he's married, and he has two children. And I'm sick of God. I'm sick of being a good person. And him not not obeying my requests and giving me the things I want. The things I deserve. And my boss wants to have an affair with me. And I'm going to go do it. She's telling her pastor this. And Steve Brown, because he, he told us, never blink. <laughs> He's the one that you said, men, men when, come in, when people come in your office, don't ever blink. You may be shocked, but don't blink. Just listen. And he said, okay. He said, go ahead. Go do it. He said, I just ask you one thing. When everything comes unglued, I want you to promise me one thing, that you will come back and see me. Well, she left the office there in a huff. But about six or eight months later, she did come back. She had gotten pregnant. 
she had had an abortion. And her life was shattered. She was broken. And as she sat there weeping and telling Steve, I've wrecked my life, I've ruined my life, Steve leaned over, hugged her and said, Now, now God can use you. Now you can really go to work for Him. You were no good to Him before. Now for some of you that's going to seem uncomfortable, but I, I hope you'll pay attention. Because this is the track of this psalmist. This honest, hyper-honest psalmist who is taking us through the reality of human life. A faithful man who is following God with all his heart and all his soul and all his strength. And he's looking around and he's saying, what is up with this world? This world is upside down. It's crazy. The arrogant and the proud are doing well. They're sleek in their fatness. You don't see the bones of, of, thin, of, of deprivation in them. You don't see them sick. They're doing so well. And he's disillusioned with his Christian life. And in the middle of the psalm, he makes a discovery. And that discovery causes him to delight. And so that is your outline for today. That's what we're going to do quickly. We're going to look at disillusionment. We've been talking for the past few weeks about worship, what it means to worship. This, on Sunday morning, is worship, but it is the culmination of what should have been, for each of us, a week long of worship. A week of devotion to God, struggling with God, really doing what this psalm is. Waking up some mornings and saying to the heavens, what's going on up there? Do you have a calendar? Do you know what time it is? Do you even have a clock? I don't understand you, God. Look, I'm looking around. I don't see what's, I don't see your hand. I don't see you moving. Why? Do you have the courage to go to this God like the psalmist did? And truly pour your heart out to Him. And let me tell you, if you do, you're going to discover what He did. Disillusionment, discovery, and delight. Let's go quickly and look at it. Disillusionment. His envy. He didn't just envy people around in the church. He envied the wicked. He was looking at it and He was saying, look at the Kardashians. I mean, look at how great they're doing. Look at how wonderful they have it. Look at these people that are just seem like they don't even care anything about you, but they're driving Bentleys and drinking Hennessy. Now I know, you're Presbyterians, you should know what Hennessy is. But I realize that some of you don't. It's cognac. And yes, I have tasted it. And it is a reason to worship. <laughs> it's really good. But no, I'm not suggesting that you drink. In fact, I'm not suggesting alcohol should ever cross your lips. That's your choice. I'm just trying to lighten your mood. But he's saying, you know, look, I'm looking around at all this crazy stuff in the world, and my goodness, they're doing great, and I am not doing well. Look at what he says. The prosperity of the wicked, they have no pangs till death. Their bodies are fat. And see, he's not talking about them being overweight. He's talking about the fact that in those days, the average person was malnourished. And a person that was wealthy, well, they had skin on their bones. I mean, really. 
Their bodies are fat and sleek. They have no trouble. They're stricken. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their next. They go, they go around strutting. He said violence covered. They do whatever they want. Their eyes swell up with fatness. In other words, they're so well off that they're just everything is looking good. Bodies perfect. Their hearts overflow. They seems like with folly. Seems like they can do the foolish thing. You do something foolish, and wow, it just hits you right away. You go, Golly, I don't I barely did that. Look at them. They're doing all this crazy stuff. Nothing seems to happen to them. They scoff. They speak with malice. Their, their mouths are filled with this hate and evil. Loftily they threaten. They set about their mouths against the heavens. Listen to this. Their tongues, I love this. This is such amazing language. Their tongue struts through the earth. In other words, they're just big fat braggarts. Their tongues strut. Don't you love that? Don't you love Psalm 73? Yeah, yeah, I love Psalm 73. Because this is my psalm, baby. I love this one. Because I live this stuff. And I'm not ashamed to say it. I love being in the company of Asaph and David and these guys. Not that I'm really in their company, but <laughs> I, like to, I like to live in the illusion <laughs> that I am. Behold, then he says, behold. I don't know what he's talking about. Behold, these are the wicked Always at ease they increase in riches. You see, is the, the, he's saying, oh, everything is great for them. Then he contrasts his pain. The prosperity of the wicked, now he talks about my pain. Look what he says. Verses 2 and 3, and he jumps down 13. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and nearly slipped. In other words, I was, I was struggling to hold on to my faith. I was having serious doubts. I'm not so sure about you. I was envious. He used a very strong word, envious of the wicked, of the arrogant, when I saw their prosperity. All in vain. Now he's making a complaint. All in vain. I've kept myself uh, pure. I've kept my heart clean like this girl that came to see uh, 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 Steve. And she says, you know, what was all this? All this. I've been a good girl. I, I didn't do anything bad. And look, I'm not getting anything from God. He's not delivering. He owes me. I'm entitled to a husband and to a family, all the things I dreamed of. And I should at least have a date. And I got nothing here. I got nothing going on. All in vain. I've kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence. And all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Now what do you see there? What do you see in these two stories? First of all, what you should see is a lot of exaggeration, yes? I mean, really? You know, you can say these things, and she's, the, the psalmist is using hyperbole, which is, which is, thank God it's a poem, because that's what you do in a poem. You use hyperbole. You exaggerate. No, not all the wicked are living these perfect lives. In fact, all you have to do is just click on a news feed on the internet and go to one of the you know go to one of the the celebrity sites. If you you know maybe I shouldn't recommend that. Um, it wouldn't hurt you if you're an adult. Children don't do it. You go to the celebrity. You see, you know what? They're not all fat and doing well. So they're struggling. 
Multiple marriage, broken lives, drug addiction, death. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But what he's saying is my perception. As I look out, I see inequity. I see the wicked doing great. And here I am struggling and I'm, not, and I'm suffering and I'm not doing that great. And I envy them, God. I envy their prosperity. I want to be healthy. I want to be wealthy. I want to be wise. I want to have all my prayers answered. I want these things. Seems like they don't even have to pray and they get whatever they want. My goodness. Do you have a calendar up there? And he's being, he's being honest. And folks, I think that as Christians, sometimes we get so, we want to be so pious and we want to, you know, act, we, we, we have a completely false view of what it is to be, first of all, a human being, and secondly, a Christian human being. If you're a Christian, you should be feeling things deeply. Great disappointment, injustice, poverty, racism, hatred. Sorrow, pain, those things should bother us. We don't want to dance through life pretending that everything's okay. It's not okay. And the psalmist knows this. It's our human perception. And it's real. And it should be part of your prayers. That you cry out to God and say, I don't understand. I don't know why this is going on. I can't get it. Have any of you read screw tape letters? Anybody? You know, everybody should. Here's my, here's my uh, summer project for you. And if you don't do this, you're going to lose merit in heaven. The treasury of merit. You're going <laughs> to. No, I'm kidding. Look, here's your assignment. Little book. Read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. You will not regret it. It's great summer reading because it will keep you, because summer's a time when, you know, we kind of enjoy ourselves. This will bring you down a little bit. Keep you from enjoying summer too much. (laughs) Actually, it's very entertaining, but it's also very troubling. It's the senior devil screw tape who is counseling his junior devil Wormwood, and he's writing letters saying, "Here's here's how you mess up Christians. You want to mess up Christians? Here's how to do it. And he writes all these incredible letters, and they're so insightful. In fact, C.S. Lewis said it was one of the hardest things he ever read or wrote because it was so difficult to get into the mind of this senior devil Screwtape, but he did a good job. Here, listen to this. This is one of the strategies that the senior devil, Screwtape, gives to his junior devil, his junior demon, Wormwood. Listen, I love this. Whatever men expect, they soon come to think they have a right to it. Huh? You know what's coming, don't you? Whatever men expect, they soon come to think they have a right to it. They're entitled to it. The sense of disappointment can, listen, the sense of it when they're unrealized, when their expectations are not meant, with very little skill on our part. In other words, he's telling his little demon uh, wormwood, his little protege, saying, you don't even have to try, just a little bit of effort, and you can do this to them. Little effort on our part, you can turn that unrealized expectation into a sense of injury. That's not fair. I've done all these good things for God. Why is this happening to me? 
Why is my life so bad? Why did I have this accident? Why isn't my job going? Why is my marriage in trouble? Why are my kids going off the rails? How come I don't have enough money? Why is my fig tree dying? I have the fig tree that Jesus cursed in my backyard. And I've got about four cuttings that are ready to come off. I'm going to put them in, in containers. I'm going to bring them in. And I'm going to give anyone that wants one, I'm going to give it to you. And if you grow figs, I'm going to dislike you immensely. <laughs> but I want to know, why my fig tree? And it's a cutting off my dad's tree. My dad has a million figs. What's wrong with my tree? I've pampered it. I've loved it. I've kissed it. I've sung to it. I've prayed or I've cast the devil out of it. Turn that little sense of injury into a bigger thing and you've got them. And folks, I can't tell you how true that is in the church. Well, what happens? What happens? It turns into a discovery. And, and this is what's so beautiful. Psalm, Psalm 73 is actually pretty easy to preach from. It's pretty easy to outline. So I wish I could take credit, but it's the psalmist is a pure genius. Asaph was something else. And he says that the psalmist makes a discovery. Look at verse 16 and, and down. He says in verse 16, But I thought how to understand this, and it seemed a wearisome task. You see, the psalmist was truly wrestling with it. And what happens with a lot of us as Christians, we either just get mad and get bitter and get quiet, and we just start, you know, we just let it go down and down and down, and we just get more and more bitter. But at church, oh, we're smiling and all trying to, you know, be, oh, I'm so, I'm so blessed, everything's so wonderful, all that. But inside, there's a root of bitterness that's making its way deeper, deeper, deeper. And Asaph, Asaph owns it. He says, no, it was a wearisome time. This was bothering me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now Asaph was probably a priest of some kind. He was probably a worship person. And so he probably did have access to the tabernacle uh, or temple, uh, whatever, whichever Asaph this was. And so he was able to go into the sanctuary, the place where God's presence was. And for you, that place is singular. There is one place for you as Christians that you can go and enter in to the presence of God. Do you know where it is? Or Better yet, do you know who it is? Jesus is that true temple. He's the place you go. I wish I could say it was this church. We could make a lot of money if we could get people to believe that. It's not the building. It can, it can be the community of believers, the body of Christ, but even the body of Christ has no real meaning without the person of Jesus Christ. 
But he went into the presence of God, whatever it was, the sanctuary, and then he discerned, you see, by God's grace, he understood the end. In other words, he had what I told you a few weeks ago as the eternal perspective. He was able, by God's grace and by God's Spirit, he was able to look at the whole picture. Someday, these beautiful people that you see in the glossy magazines and on the internet are going to be old and wrinkly and covered with age spots. In fact, if you actually saw them now, without all of the, you know, all of the magic of Photoshop and everything else, they don't look that great. Now, their cars are pretty cool. I have to admit that. But... All right. I discern their end. And there's this moment in verse 18 and following where he has a moment of spiritual clarity. And I want to make it very clear. He didn't just come to this. This is supernatural. This is the Holy Spirit opening our understanding. And we should be praying for that, folks. Every day you should pray. Part of your prayers, if you have five minutes of pray, prayer, whatever, ten minutes, hour, whatever, at least include this one phrase in there. Open my eyes, O Lord. Let me see. First, let me see me. Then let me see you. Robert Murray McShane said, for every look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus. You see, you've got to look. John Calvin said, to know yourself, you have to know God. And to know God, you have to know yourself. You've got to be taking that inner look and that outer look. That's what he's talking about here. I discerned their end. He had this moment of spiritual clarity and said truly you set them in slippery places you make them fall to ruin they're destroyed they're swept away you despise them like phantoms in other words all that substance that is so impressive the gold the riches the fame the all of it is like a puff of smoke here today gone tomorrow all the power, all the beauty, all the grandeur, it is fleeting. And he said, I had this moment of clarity. I saw it for what it really is. And look at verse 21. He says, when my soul... He said, when I saw it, I saw it when my soul was embittered. He had godly... what. The Apostle Paul said, godly sorrow. His soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. In other words, this, this uh, uh, revelation that came to him, this discernment that came to him, he actually saw something. He saw the reality of it. Not the surface, which obviously looks good. He was able to see behind. I was embittered when my heart was pricked. And he said then, he said, I saw. I saw this. I was... I can hardly say it because I've prayed this. I was brutish. I was like a brute. I was like an animal. I was ignorant. What was I thinking? I was like a beast. 
towards you. I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was like a beast. You see, he has he has gone down, folks. And this I've told you this for years. You've got to go down, down, find the bottom. Now he's at the bottom and he's saying, I was really a brute. It's not about them. It's not about all the... Be- it's not about that. It's not about the, 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 the wicked who are doing so well. It's about me. My brutish heart. My idols. What I really want. What will do it for me. But I was an animal. I was a brute. I was a beast before you. Godly sorrow. And what does it do? It leads him to repentance. Remember what Paul said? Paul said, Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. It it leads us to turn not just away from sin. Repentance, remember, there's two sides to repentance. One is you turn away from your sin, but there's an equal and, and almost, I, would, I hate to say it, but almost more important part of repentance than that is what you turn to. And what you turn to is also singular. A person. You go from the place the sanctuary, the presence of God. You can go into the... Listen, these priests went into the sanctuary all the time. And they never knew Him. Jesus said, they draw near to Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. They don't know Me. Depart from Me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Probably the most horrific passage of Scripture in all the Bible. My soul is embittered. I was pricked in heart. I was brutish like a beast towards you. Now listen to these words. I cannot count. There are countless times I have prayed this prayer myself. And I hope you make it a regular for you. Nevertheless, you've got to love that word. Nevertheless, even though all this inequity is out there, even though all this injustice is out there, even though it's really bad, nevertheless, I am continually with Thee. I'm continually with You. You hold my right hand. You guide me with Your counsel. And afterward, You will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but You? And besides You, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but You, O Lord, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Notice how many times he says, you, count them up, seven times he says, you, 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 you. Delight. I go from my disillusion out there, real, honest disillusion. Don't minimize it. Don't say, well, it's not so bad. No, it's bad. It's unjust. It's evil. And he goes from there, but he doesn't stay there. He moves. He makes the track like the storm last week. He makes the track. And he goes to the presence of God, to the place where you can put the stake in the vampire of that idolatry that is sucking the life out of you. Put it to death. 
takes him to the sanctuary. And there, what does he find? He finds delight. Delight in what? You. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. This is a man, this is a person that you want to be. Who looks at everything around him and says, Nevertheless, Yeah, things are not right. Maybe I've got a bad disease. Nevertheless, you're with me. My marriage is failing. Nevertheless, you're with me. My, my finances are... Nevertheless, you're with me. I'm experiencing persecution and suffering. My life's not going... Nevertheless, you... Nevertheless, you, you, you... Every look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus, Robert Murray McShane. Never forget that. You've got to turn your eyes off the inequity, off the hatred, off the cruelty, off the failure, off the volcanoes, off of everything, all the foolishness in Washington, all the corruption in the world. You've got to get your eyes on Jesus and there you, you find hope. And then from there, you don't hunker down and hide and oh my God, what are we going to do and wring your hands? No, with courage you strap on the arm of God and you move out into that hostile world. He discovers something. Where does He discover it? By worshiping. By going into God's presence. That's why I've told, I've told many of you and I will tell you every day as long as I live. Run to Jesus. The day you fail is the day you turn away from Him. Run to Him. Go to Him with all the pain and all the hurt and all the anguish and all the doubt and all the fear and all the questions. They're all there. Don't pretend they're not there. Take them and go to Him and say, here they are. I don't understand. Help me. Help my unbelief. Jesus said to the man who's had the crippled son who was throwing himself in the fire, he says, do you believe in Jesus? And the poor man, you got to love this man. This man is us. This man says, yeah, I believe. <laughs> Help my unbelief. Yes, I believe. Of course I believe. But help my unbelief. That's what he's looking for, folks. And here's his conclusion. Look, you've got to love. I love the Psalms. I read from the Psalms every day. Sometimes I don't read the rest of my Bible. I just read Psalms. Verse 27. Behold. He comes to a conclusion after all this, which you've got to love. He's, he's thinking it through. He's thinking it out. Behold, those far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you, but it was good for me to be near you. I've made the Lord my refuge. And then I may tell of all your works. Folks, you are going to experience this stuff that's the good news for the day. The bad news is that some of you are just not going to make the movement to verse 27 and you're not going to see how to get from 27 to 28. Look at it in your text. Good for the, bad to be far, good to be near. How do you get there? You know, Steve Brown, I put up on Facebook the other day on my Facebook page a little vignette from a, a sermon by, by Steve Brown who I mentioned before. And Steve said something that just shocked me. I sent it to Monty Villa. Just on your gravestone, on your gravestone, 
is going to be your date of birth and your date of death, your deceased date. Yes? Right? You all tracking with me? What is in between? What's there? Normally it's a dash or a comma, right? And Steve Brown told the audience at this big church in South Florida, he told them, he said, you know, I'm an old guy and he's old. Steve said, I don't understand that comma. I don't understand it. And neither do you. How do you make sense of that dash on a gravestone? How do you make sense of the comma between born 19-whatever, dead 20-whatever? How do you make sense of that? How do you get from 27 to 28? Good to be, uh, bad to be, uh, 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 bad to be far from you, but good to be near. How do you get there? Where is, what does the dash mean? Chuck Colson, Prison Fellowship, some of you know who he is, won the 1993 Templeton Prize for Religion. And he had to give a speech. And it's online. If you haven't listened to it, you should go listen to it. But he ends his speech this way, talking to an audience of people from all different religions, talking about a place, and I shared this with you many years ago, but I want to close with this. Listen carefully. A place called Humaita Prison a notorious prison in Brazil that was so awful, they finally gave up on it. They turned it over to two Christian laymen who started running it according to gospel principles and biblical principles. And so at the time when Colson went to go tour Humaita Prison in Brazil, they only had two staff that ran this entire prison, no guards. And these were horrible people, offenders. Serious criminals. Every prisoner was assigned another prisoner to whom he was accountable. And then on the outside, they had families that were sponsoring these guys and helping them get out of prison and make successful transition. Let me read you this portion. I beg you to listen carefully. Very short. When I visited Humaita, I found the inmates smiling. Particularly the murderer who held the keys and opened the gates, and let me in. Wherever I walked, I saw men at peace, working industriously, clean living areas, walls decorated with biblical sayings. Humaita has an astonishing record. The recidivism rate, that's the, the return rate of criminals coming out of there, the recidivism rate of Humaita is 4% compared with 75% for the rest of Brazil and higher in the United States. In other words, 75% of prisoners that get out of prison go back in. But recidivism at Humaita is 4%. How is this possible? Colson, who had you know, created and ran prison fellowships, saying, how is this possible? I saw the answer. Listen to this, folks. Zero in on this. I saw the answer when my inmate guide escorted me to the notorious punishment cell once used for torture. Today he told me that block 
houses only one prisoner. As we reached the end of the long concrete corridor, he put the key into the lock. He paused and he asked me, Are you sure you want to go in? Of course, I replied impatiently. I've been in isolation cells all over the world. Slowly, he swung open the massive door. And I saw the prisoner. In that punishment cell, I saw the prisoner in that punishment cell, a crucifix. Beautifully carved by the hands of the Humaita inmates. The prisoner, Jesus, hanging on a cross. My guide turned to me and said, He's doing time for the rest of us. Do you see it? Do you see the glory that is in the cross? Do you see what the hyphen means? What the comma means? Do you see the struggles of this world? The true inequities that are out there can only be understood if you look at the cross of Christ because there the truly faithful man who obeyed God's law every single jot, every single tittle, every single word, obeyed it perfectly, and then stepped into the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And heaven should have opened up and all the angels of God should have received Him up into heaven. But Jonathan Edwards says instead of heaven opening and receiving this great king who had obeyed the law and done everything right, Jonathan Edwards said the earth opened up and Jesus looked down into the abyss. Into hell itself. And when he saw it, Here's what he said. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Nevertheless, you, you, you. I'll go for them. I will die for them. I'll make that dash on their gravestones glorious, meaningful. That when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the one who was faithful, he promises that in him you have hope, even though the world is it's unfair, horribly unfair, unjust. Filled with inequity. Lots of disappointments. Lots of pain. Lots of bad news at the doctors. Lots of kids that get lost. Lots of marriages that go south. But what he's saying is, trust me. Will you? Will you trust him? Nevertheless, you. 
You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I pray you'll do it. Father, we love you and thank you. This world is filled with sorrow and pain. It's also filled with great joys and wonder. But we get caught up. Wormwood and screw tape, they lie to us and tell us things that are untrue. We've got to be in your presence to find the answers, Holy Father. And so as we come to your table today, as we come to feast upon the body and blood of Jesus, which are the presence of Christ in this world for us, I pray that you will feed us in our hearts by faith, that as we come to your table, you will say to us, this is my body given for you. This is my blood for the remission of your sins. And that we will trust you even though the world is filled with inequity and unfairness, nevertheless, you gave us your Son. Help us, save us. Have mercy on us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.